Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, I'm Andrea Blythe, co-host of New Books and Poetry, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today, we're speaking with Roy G. Guzman about their new book, Catrachos. Roy received a 2019 grant from the National Endowment for the Arts and a 2017 Ruth Lilly and Dorothy Sargent Rosenberg Poetry Fellowship. Raised in Miami, Florida, Guzman currently lives in Minneapolis. Catrachos is their first book of poetry published by Grey Wolf Press in May 2020. Congratulations on getting your first book out into the world, and thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me on the show, Andrea, and thank you for the congrats. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's my pleasure. I've been a huge fan of your work before uh, your book came out, and I'm so excited that more people are going to get a chance to read your work. That means a lot. Thank you. So to kick things off, I would love to know a little bit about how you first connected to poetry and your path to becoming a poet. Yes. Um, so I, I didn't grow up with uh, poetry as, as, a, as a thing that I could pursue or as a, an art form that felt viable. Um, I started taking, I guess I started writing a little bit of poetry when I was in high school, but a lot of that poetry was very much, I guess what you would call like uh, fan poetry. Um, I was writing poems inspired by Smashing Pumpkins and um, inspired by Emily Dickinson. And I didn't know, you know, what I was doing at the time. I think I started thinking more seriously about poetry when I was in college. Um, And I took some creative writing courses at the beginning. um, My first, I think my first two years of college, but I still didn't know if there was a genre that spoke to me Mm. or um, if there was anything that I could do with, with, you know, with creative writing Um, it had, I think that I had to go through a lot of literature courses to really think about what poets were doing, what gravitated me, um, what, what what attracted me about uh, poetry specifically. And yeah, and then I started writing a little bit in college. Um, I didn't start writing more seriously until probably around 2010, 2011. Great. So how did you get to a point where you were going to start publishing and start um, kind of uh, choosing poetry as a path for yourself? Absolutely. I think so... I ended up, I started writing poetry from a, from a need to uh, heal. (laughs) I think a lot of people um, often say that, and it seems um, a little bit like of a cliche, but, um, but I think that, but that's what it was for me. Um, There was a lot that I needed to reconcile, not just about myself, but about my past and reconcile in a way, not just to, to have some closure with it, but as a, as a way to think more uh, rigorously 
about what is it that I wanted to do in this, you know, what kinds of contributions I wanted to make as a, uh, as, as a person. And so I started reading a lot around that time. And I also started writing in um, one of the schools I was adjuncting for, this was back in Miami, a librarian had heard that I was a poet or that I had been writing poetry. And he said he wanted to see some of my work. And what's funny about that is, I guess someone heard that I had written maybe two or three poems and his ask his, you know, his asking me for like poetry made me realize that, you know, if I'm a writer, I should be writing, right? If I'm a poet, I should be, you know, drafting more poems. And that's exactly what I did. I started writing more poetry um, with an interest on, you know, sort of what language could do in terms of helping me think about memory, helping me think about my own background. I started, I guess you would say, publishing my own work. This was through a blog. I don't know about you, Andrea, but that's sort of how it started for me. I would post, you know, my own poems or little sort of like thoughts I was having. And through that, I ended up creating, I guess, like a, a, an informal uh, virtual community with other writers and readers. Uh, I would be exposed to different styles um, through that. And then from there, I ended up sort of like expanding to different sort of social media platforms and being introduced to more writers and, and more voices. So that's how um, I think that's how I started show, sharing my work with um, with a public or with an audience. Yeah, I I love the way one of the the positive things about the internet and the is the way that you can create communities like that and create a a, a way to share your work that's a, that's I want to say less confrontational, but that's not quite the right word that I'm looking for because it can be very <laughs> confrontational sometimes. Yeah, but uh, a little less pressure sometimes compared to trying to submit to you know capital L literary publications. Absolutely, and I think when I was when I was starting to do this in a more public way, even Twitter functioned as as a as, as a different platform, right? We eventually saw the power of, of of Twitter in terms of thinking about movements and revolutions and and um, community organizing. But at the time, I think I'm thinking about 2012, perhaps. Twitter was a very different space, and it's changed, you know, in the last six uh, eight years. But back in in those years. It felt like it was, um, I was able to connect with people where, who were so obvious, like they, they so obviously share many of, you know, my affinities and vice versa. And, and, and it, and it came from a place of like wonderment and it came, you know, from a place of wanting to share you know, and 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 engage in different conversations, conversations that I I was never able to have sometimes in person. So that's where I was able to to connect with writers and connect with different forms of publication. For instance, think about hierarchies differently as well. 
that's where I was able to understand what it meant to start a journal from scratch, you know, or what it was like having a very simple conversation with some strangers online um, who share a passion for literature. And all of a sudden, you know, a month later, now you're running a, a, a creative space um, and, and hearing people's voices. So for me, that was incredibly, not only was it fruitful, but it, I was able to make a lot of friends through um, through those exchanges. Many of those people, obviously, their relationship to social media changed. My relationship to social media has absolutely changed, but um, it still remains a significant um, conversation and, and a significant tool. Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. Um, so how did Katratras come about? Like, what was the process of bringing it together? What were some of the challenges and joys of putting together your first book of poetry? Yeah, I don't, th- I never thought I would write a book. I mean, I come from a place where um, to write a book was just something that it felt unachievable. And even though I've been, you know, to, I've been to institutions where it seems like people are not only asking, you know, these big questions, but there's a lot of resources where they can start putting those those sort of thoughts into practice. I still did not feel like I could, you know, write a book. And I wrote a lot of poems before I started writing the the poems that would go into Catrachos. And pro- yeah, I, I, I think I wrote hundreds of poems that, you know, very, very, very few that that I publish online or uh, in print. But um, most of that stuff were just different attempts at understanding poetry and understanding myself and understanding what I was trying to do. Some of the earliest poems um, in the book, I think, go back to maybe 2012, 2013, but they went through major revisions. There are poems in the book, uh, the title poem, for instance, the one that opens the collection, that poem went through at least 40-something revisions before it became what it is. There was there were other poems too that went through major revisions. Let's see, the the quinceañera poem went through um, years of revisions. Those seventy two bodies belong to us went through major revisions. There there's Our Lady of Suyapa that also went through um, lots of different revisions. Um, there were poems that that were either sections of other poems that once I was able to zoom in more, I realized, oh no, this is where the heart of the poem is. And there's more that I want to say about this section itself. And so those sections would become their own sort of poems, um, like Marero, for instance, and you know, of course, there's the the series of queer dacto poems where you have thirteen in the book, and I believe that I ended up with about twenty five of them. 
And those took, you know, different attempts, different directions. It took me experimenting with different materials, even different voices, because there's more than one queer dactyl. So I feel like the, sort of in thinking about like the genesis of the book, it started off with a lot of poems that became, you know, I don't want to call them false attempts, but I think that I needed to write those poems to be able to land at something like what, you know, the book became. There were a lot of successes, I would say, in terms of the book itself. Um, I <laughs> I know this is going to sound really weird, but I had a dream um, when, I, when I was writing the book. And in the dream, I literally was like leafing through the book, uh, through my book, which I had not finished writing at all. And I could sort of see what the book would look like. And I actually... I was in my dream, I was aware that I was dreaming and it got to a point where I was like, oh my God, I really should try to like, like memorize like what I'm seeing in the book. Right. And, and, and that energy actually made it into the, the, the actual printed book. Um, so I would say that being in that, in, in that sort of space, even your dreams end up becoming spaces where the book, you know, where you continue to, to, to think about the book. There were other poems, um, Preparations for a Trip Home. It's a, it's a bit of a lengthy poem, and that poem felt like it was a gift poem. What you see here, um, it, 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 it close to what originally was written. And then, yeah, but, you know, then, then there's the poem, like My Great-Grandmother's Egg Thief, that poem went through dozens of revisions. I'm grateful for, I think, being in Minneapolis and having, finding a press that's based out of, out of here while also having a access to a lot of like national spaces has been a blessing to me. I will say that the book, this book did not go through this like round of rejections or anything like that before it was picked up. So I'm very grateful for that and very lucky for that. When it comes to other successes, I mean, you probably have seen the acknowledgements page. <laughs> it, the acknowledgements section it's, is huge. And it's huge because there were just so many people who who worked with me either on me as a person or on my work or in some way um, influenced what ended up, um, you know, becoming this book. But, you know, I even think, for instance, restaurants and the employees in this restaurants. And I think uh, the technicians and the server maintenance people who run, you know, video games, because for me, all of that was so important. And, and those are conversations and, and, you know, and, and I guess media, different forms of media that have influenced my way of thinking, my way of writing, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. I, it feels like, um, a very blessed project in terms of 
sometimes you it's possible to experience the right right creative energy that ties into you know having the right people and support around you that allows such a project to come into being. Absolutely. I think about that, especially when it comes to like record making, right? Like having the right producers, uh, uh, collaborating with the right songwriters. Um, You know, I think about that a lot because I feel like this book um, is, is in that spirit of like, what kinds of collaborators do I want to bring to to the table? And many of that was unintentional. And yet I feel like looking at this product, I'm I'm so grateful for all the, you know, the voices and, and people who are in, in, in that quote unquote creative space with me. Um, in terms of you know, we were talking about successes and, and joys. In terms of challenges, <laughs> I think the book itself, you know, the fact that I had to write this book is, is you know, it's a major tragedy because, you know, I'm, think, I'm talking about issues that affect Honduran people, issues that affect queer people, brown people, trans people, people, you know, from, from very from all kinds of marginalized communities and identities that, you know, intersect me. And so I feel like that was one of the biggest challenges in writing this book that it it, it was like a trigger fest. Even when I was quote unquote done with, with the draft that I would be editing or even working on the notes section at the end of the book, that was that was a, a trigger fest thinking about like what were the the songs the foods the the smells what you know the pains that inspire these poems the the periods of isolation frustration depression all of that you know the book the book is only right that the the not to be again cliche but it's it's only at the tip of, of, of the iceberg of, of this process that, that went in through, um, into the, you know, just not just my, my book writing process, but like my lived experience. And so the fact that I had to write about, or I needed to write about, um, hate crimes, for instance, the fact that there are poems, persona poems written from the perspective of, 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 you know, like decapitated bodies, mutilated bodies, um, shot bodies, the fact that impunity when it comes to many of these issues remains a, a, a major tragedy, not just in Honduras, but in other places of Central America, and then also still here in the United States. One, there's an interview I did with, um, this was a different interview, where the where I was told that the they they were one of the compliments they gave me was that the book felt very much current and fresh and and again that to me you know the 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 double sidedness of something like that something like that is 
this is that's 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 perfect, right? That's the intention I wanted to bring to the book and to the issues, right? To make sure that I spoke in a language that that made these issues um, always important and urgent. And yet, I you know my I said the tragedy about that is you know many uh, the first iteration of this book was done around 2016. And to know that many of these issues remain part of the conversation is a tragedy, right? That policies continue to haunt queer people of color, trans people, immigrants, right? Thinking about detention centers and, and unaccompanied children and have, you know, and, and seeing women literally have these uh, medical procedures against their own bodies. It's 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 heartbreaking. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's like in the long term, the hope is that the change happens, and so therefore it becomes that historical record instead of of the present moment. Absolutely, and and you know what's interesting that I'm glad that you brought up this the the notion of history because I, you know, this isn't supposed to be a history book. And yet it is, right? This isn't supposed to be a sociology book, and yet it is. It's not supposed to be anthropology, yet it is. You know, it's not supposed to be uh, a, a testimonial or testimonial, and yet it is. And those are the contradictions that I think, especially when you're a marginalized writer, you your your words are always operating on so many different frequencies at once. One of the things I find beautiful about your work is the way when I'm reading it, I just feel a wash in language and imagery and layers of of these different aspects, your your personal experiences and and some of the history and some of the just various emotional aspects. I can totally understand why it would be triggering to write it as well. Um, and I was I was wondering a bit about your process when you sit down to write a poem and how a poem comes into being for you. And because you mentioned, you know, the aspect of being triggered, how you process when you're while you're writing. Hmm. That's a great question. Um <laughs> it's it's a it's a great question because it's 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 a multifaceted question, right? Um, and it's a question where I feel like if I have an answer, I also want to simultaneously provide other answers, right, to it. But thinking about like, like what what goes into sort of the birth of a poem, I think in general, for me, it's a sense of restlessness, either. I feel an anxiety around something that I need to to wrestle with or the subject matter itself is restless, right? There's something about it that feels either like it 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 feels like a problem, right? Or it feels like it it's unresolved or it feels almost like 
it exists in the space of you know anxiety and murder and 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 impunity as i as i as i mentioned i think that the question of whether how where and when do i invite self care right or an element of of healing as i as I contend with these archives, that's how, you know, I understand your Mm -hmm. question. It's, it's, it's something that is very complicated. I think that for me, often I go into, you know, I go to the page, not with the expectation that, that I'll, I'm, I'm, I'm going to, to dig into triggering themes and yet the work itself takes me there and i have to be open to that so for me the question this question is a question of temporality right do i take care of myself before i embark on the journey of writing the poem do i think about find snippets of self healing in the process of writing the poem and or do i have a way to, you know, once I finish writing the poem, at least the first draft, what resources do I have to to help me, you know, cope with with the trauma, with revisiting trauma, for instance? And, you know, I'm someone who wholeheartedly believes in the power of therapy. I believe that all writers <laughs> should come with free access to therapy. All artists, in fact, should have access, free access to, to, to therapy because art is that art is that dangerous, right? And art is also risky. And art art literally subjects your mind and your, your well-being, your mental health. It, it takes it through very dangerous, you know, like tunnels. And so I think that, you know, I'm all for therapy. I'm all for trying to also build community and, and, and writing work that when I have a draft, I can share with people who I know are safe people um, to me and have been safe and have demonstrated how much they honor my friend, you know, our friendship, me as a person and my work. I think that when when it comes to the, the the writing process itself and how I find moments of healing, I think that language can bring about that. I think that the act of writing itself can, in fact, serve as um, contradictorily, right? It can also initiate a process of hope, a window towards thinking about hope, a window towards thinking about um, different alternative exits, right, out of out of the trauma that 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 haunts me or that haunts my work, and you know when I when I'm writing, I'm the kind of person who, for better or worse, you know, and this pandemic has made that very challenging. I have to work in different spaces. I especially enjoy working you know, around other people, even if I don't know them. And I think that 
you asking this question actually makes me feel like in retrospect, I probably feel less alone when I'm writing around, you know, around other people. Um, I also, when I write, especially about traumatizing material, I, you know, I summon music and, and, and food and scents and flavors and, and photographs that, that also present me with different emotions at the same time. So I'm never, you know, it's like in order not to feel like I'm fully in the tunnel, there are things that can help me like bring me out of that space or at least I can dive deeper and feel like I have a rope tied around my waist and that there's going to be something or someone that's going to pull me back if I feel like I'm, I'm, I, I, like I've gone too far. I completely understand that. It's like finding ways to remain grounded because writing is so very much in the head and in the emotions and the, the experience is very, can be very intense and in finding ways to stay anchored. Absolutely. I, I'd like to come back to the, the queerodactyl poems because I'm pretty sure they were my first introduction to your work and I absolutely fell in love with them. And in general, I'm always fascinated when a poet explores a concept through multiple poems, like sticks with, with a, a theme, I guess. I don't know if I'm using the right words, <laughs> but, but that it always delighted me when I came across another one. So I, I'd love to t- have you talk a bit about that series. Yeah, yeah. It's like, I think about like, you know, you um, bring 10 different, you know, ingredients, right? Like whether it be veggies, you know, um, et cetera, et cetera. And your task is to produce, you know, 10 different dishes with those 10 same ingredients. Um, And I like to think that I have that I mean, I'm such a foodie, right? Everything goes back to food metaphors for me. Um, but that, it, it, with that sort of metaphor, I'm thinking about like, you know, uh, poetry series and 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 poetry cycles that you might find in books. Um, I know that when I wrote the first queer dactyl poem, it felt like it was a voice and a world making process that didn't want to stop at just one poem. Um, It wanted to be different things. One thing that I, in the process, I, I, you know, I learned was that the, the sequence wanted to, you know, be about different kinds of issues. It wanted to have different ranges when it came to tone. It wanted to work with language differently. It also wanted to it, it wanted to code switch um, in, in, in unexpected ways. It wanted to do things very differently with syntax. And of course, you know, as I started writing more of them, I realized like, okay, so sometimes these these queer dactyl poems um, have a singular voice and sometimes they have a collective plural voice. So I, this series itself, 
I have thought about like what I've, I've always known that it needed to be part of a book like this. I did get suggestions early on about having it as its own chapbook or having it as its own full length. And to me, that just did not work. I have thought about, you know, once, you know, there's a post-pandemic life, what it would be like to stage them and then bring some of the other um, queer redacto poems into that sort of space. And what would it be like to, to, in the process of staging them, to think about them in a multimedia way, you know, through dance, through um, color, for instance, through texture. So that's something that I thought about. And, and I thought about them in the book this way and what they do, not just as a sequence, but also what they do next to the other poems that are not in this sequence. Yeah, wow. I I love the idea of staging it. And if you, you ever get around to doing that post-COVID lifestyle, I'll have to uh, come out and see it. Thank you, yes. <laughs> so throughout the poems in the book, there's like this, the blending of English and untranslated Spanish. And I love when bilingual or multilingual poets include that in their work. Because when I come across something from a language that I don't understand, it reminds me that there are experiences outside of myself that the world is wider than my understanding of it. Mm-hmm. And I also, um, I was recently reading your your interview in Fear No Lit, in which you talk about how all art has some aspect of being untranslatable. Mm. And so my question is, um, in your personal experience and point of view and regarding poetry and writing in regards to translating language and culture or not translating it and just allowing it to exist. So um, yeah, some of your perspective on that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I, I love that question because I find that it really gets into how I think about language, regardless of, you know, you know, what, what language you're talking about. Ultimately, right, language is is a product, right? It's an artifice. And it's something that you can mold. It's something that you can shape and and, and sculpt into something that that might be incredibly new to you. And so what that means is that because language is always an approximation of anything. I fundamentally believe that, philosophically believe that. It's only an an approximation. It's only a placeholder for something else. Then this means that, you know, language is always coming up against something, something, right? I'm Mm going to call that something. And so... This for me means that every single language in existence is always in a state of translating itself or even mistranslating itself. Language is already inexact, right? The reason why we have synonyms is because language is inexact. The reason why we have language is because 
life is, you know, the way that we conceive of life, the way that we we can talk about life is always an approximation. And so for me, that is the joy and also the frustration, right? The joy of that is that you can run you you can never run out of out of sequences of of shaping language and trying to understand what's what the something is. The frustration is that that either we would never we may never achieve a full understanding of that something, or perhaps that maybe language is not even the 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 adequate tool to help us understand that something. Right. And and by language I also mean like medium, you know, I also mean, you know, craft. I also mean, you know, tools, materials, sounds, you know, et cetera, et cetera. They're all just approximations of things. So when I was, you know, with that interview that I that that, that you brought up, that's exactly sort of the spirit in which I was working through this book knowing that once you understand that that language by its very nature misunderstands like it, it misunderstands itself then then the question of a language or the rules of a language or the rules of syntax become a lot more malleable mm. and that's how you know in thinking about spanglish spanglish is one place where the performativity of Spanglish is is telling us that, hey, the same way you see how this hy- hybridity, right? Like how this hybrid reality is taking shape here. Yes, that should remind you that any of the quote unquote official languages are only official languages because you know, of power and law and the and institutions that have declared them, you know, this and not that, or this and maybe some of that. But at the end, I, I do feel that all writing and all art is a form of translation. Yeah, the, the idea of coming up against this, this something as you describe it and it's like that mathematical model where you cut a thing in half, but you're still only halfway there. And then you cut a thing in half and you're still only halfway there and you never fully reach the something. Yeah. It's like, you know, I think about like the mathematical limit, like that's exactly right. Like the mathematical limit is, you know, it'll keep going until, you know, to, to infinity. Right. It'll, and, and infinity is something that we have a word for it, but we, we don't know what that is, right? You know, is it the black hole? Is it, is is it God, right? Is is this something God is is it, and so does that mean God is in every little something of 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 the table, of of the chair, of my mother, or of you know society? Like, you know, that I think is is something that that I find very uh, enriching. And also, again, so challenging about language. Yeah, absolutely. Would you like to read a poem from the collection? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, now I'm thinking about this question of infinity. Ooh. 
Let me just take a look here. Hmm. Okay. I've got the poem. And and I chose this poem because <laughs> I think death also is one way that we try to understand infinity. And this poem is in the book. It's titled Finding Logic in a Crushed Head. And it's inspired, it was inspired by a childhood friend who I ended up living leaving um, Honduras when I was about nine and a half. And while I was in the U.S., he tried to cross the U.S.-Mexico border. And, you know, like other people, they were trying to find a place where they can sleep at night. And he slept on the, by the train tracks and he ended up getting killed by the train. Um, this is a poem for him. His name was Bilingo, or we call him Bilingo. Finding logic in a crushed head. It is not a fallacy that the pulperia owner who wakes up dressed in a tunic of warrior's pelos or the milkman pressing his rough hands against the cow's tectonic body, remembers the skirted boy with ovarian lipstick for a tongue, the boy who offered a tenth of his knees to the teeth of a country with dentures. Because I have lifted my legs, to examine what birds will rest in abandoned nests, because I have lifted my hands from the chest of shipwrecked men who've turned the seas into inconsolable lovers with a misguided orgasm. Or perhaps the pulperia owner, skin brown and preternatural as an Arizona bark scorpion on sawdust, will stop laughing one day at the boy who, before death, settled upon his ashy limbs and his elbows were strangulated by exile's amplitude. Help me capture those polysyllabic butterflies one pins before nightfall. The boy's fine head rested on the tracks before the train trampled it like masa mixed, rolled with an aunt's hands on an oven as he tried to cantankerize the border. Moths stuck to the dictionary of the pulperia slime ball's mouth as an ulcered sun rose from his dry lips. Divinatory wings in the rusted nail geometry of a bullet hole. Our abuelas taught us to run like eyeless ghosts in a backyard. My ancestors have crimpled wooden doors with their hands, the men have, and there is no remedio for the hummingbirds a mother casts from a mouth agape, the tongues gone missing, those witnesses of railroads, carnations for the wounded. 
A new truth flits among flame, anisocampus, aquilegia, firebush, angel's trumpets. My vacancies, no boundless absence. I have seen the eyes of hummingbirds blink backwards when direction was once read as a declaration for agency. And yet, few milkmen know how the wretched live off spoilage. Ask me where to find need. I am ringmaster of my own sinkings. That was lovely. Thank you, Andrea. So now that your book is out in the world, what is it that you would hope readers would get out of your work? I really hope readers not only are um, enticed to read the book, but also that they understand that there's lots of Central American voices that need spaces to publish platforms where not only where their voices can be heard, but where they can also talk about the current, you know, issues that that plague us, you know, especially with, you know, in this pandemic and then thinking about how, you know, ever since the 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 coup happened in 2009 that ousted Celaya, um, how it's it's been politics have been so tenuous and they've been riddled with with um, you know theft and 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 very much mafia style like handlings of politics and money and resources and so I really hope people get more interested and invested in the area not just as a place to go and 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 vacation to but as a place where indigenous people are being murdered and they need our support as a place where black you know indigenous garifuna and, and other kinds of of people are trying to make a basic living and unfortunately the state which is always, you know, it. The, uh, there's a lot of ways that it's been corrupt um, since the coup happened. I think that we need to understand not only how the U.S. continues to be complicit in these injustices, but has been complicit in these injustices in the past, but it needs to find newer laws, better laws, for the people, the refugees who are fleeing a lot of these crises. I I hope so too, that, you, that your book and just in general, people grow their awareness about other human beings in the world. Absolutely. Yeah. Would you like to share a little bit about what you're working on now? Sure. So um, <laughs> I should be writing more creative work. Um, instead, I've been working a lot... Uh, as a PhD candidate um, on Central American issues, still thinking about them through different lenses. So not just through creative writing, but also through oral histories, um, ethnography, for instance, um, trying to zoom in more into the communities that are enabling LGBT people to 
either flee or to survive, to thrive, to start organizations, um, et cetera, et cetera. Um, in terms of my creative work, I have had some projects that I can't talk too much about for now, but <laughs> um, projects that hopefully um, will be picked up, you know, um, even in other genres. And I'm really excited about how people may react to, you know, those those projects like short stories, essays, possibly a memoir, possibly even a YA novel. That sounds fantastic. And I wish you the best of luck in all the projects that you're working on. To wrap up, is there something that you're reading or some form of media that you're loving right now? Oh, that's beautiful. I So I'm teaching a class on Chicanx literature. And one book that has been so moving, such a beautiful book, and I read it for the first time to teach it in this class is Aristotle and Dante Discover the Secrets of the Universe mm. by Signs. And it's such a beautiful book. I don't know if you've had a chance to read it. It's a YA book about youth and, and love and friendship and, and, and community, really. Yeah, that is a book that's been on my list for a while. So I'll have to bump it up the list. You, yeah, I think you really will like it. It's a fast read, too. Oh, awesome. I'll definitely have to check it out. If people want to learn more about you and your work, where can they find you online? Yes, they can find some of my work on my website, www.royguzman.com. They can also find me on Twitter at Katrachex. Instead of the O, there's an X before the S. And I'm also on Facebook. I'm on Instagram as well. I have an author page on Facebook, so you, they can find me there. And, you know, Grey Wolf has a page for my book. So if you, if people are interested in finding different ways to support independent bookstores, that's one way where they can find more information. Awesome. Thank you so much for this great conversation. Thank you so much, Andrea. This was lovely. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so happy. And thank you, everybody, for listening. This is New Books and Poetry, a podcast channel on the New Books Network.